and I'm the RUF campus minister at Austin P. And every time I get a chance to preach here, we go to the book of James. So we're starting chapter two today. Um, James wrote this letter to an early Christian community. James is the half-brother of Jesus and one of the early Christian leaders of the church. So you can turn there in your Bibles. Uh, the blue Bibles, they're in the seats. It's on page 1011. Maybe you got your own Bible. It'll also be on the screen. So follow me here with me as we read God's Word to us. James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? And we'll leave it at that question. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that God would help us. Father, we pray that you would um, come with us, come to us by your spirit, that you would uh, free us from the sin that this text talks about, and that we would be able to live lives that are free to love and serve you and others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I lived in Korea after I graduated from college for eight years, and I was an English teacher there. And my wife, um, one of the perks of her job was she worked at a radio station. And so I got, we got access to and tickets to shows, and we got um, uh, tickets to stuff to these high-profile dinners that I had no business being at. <laughs> so I got to, like, dress up and you know, hobnob with people that I had no business hobnobbing with. Uh, one time, Jummy got invited, my wife Jummy got invited to the Canadian Chamber of Commerce Thanksgiving event dinner. And I ended up sitting next to the chairman's wife, and we were sitting there, and I was eating my Canadian bacon and my cheese curds, and she started striking up a conversation with me, and she was like super friendly, and um, she was asking me questions, and she told me that I should go, I should definitely come to this poutine festival that they were having in Seoul, South Korea. If you don't know what poutine is, it's like Canadian food. This is uh, french fries with gravy and cheese curds on top, and I was like, yeah, I'm down with that. Um, <laughs> So we were talking a little bit more, and then she asked me where I was from, and I think she was expecting me to say Quebec or Toronto or Vancouver or Saskatchewan or British Columbia or something like that from Canada, but I told her, I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and this, the look just <laughs> drained from her face, and she said out loud, she said this to herself, she said, then why am I talking to you and in inviting you to this event? And then she turned around and stopped talking to me. <laughs> And I was like, I'm still a human being. Come on, I got feelings. <laughs> so <laughs> I immediately lost all favor in this woman's eyes. She was being so overly nice to me at first until she realized that maybe, I, I don't know why, maybe I didn't have anything to offer her here. Maybe she had a, a, quota of, a quota of Canadians that she needed to come to this event, and I was not meeting, helping her meet this quota. Um, one moment I felt her kindness 
and her friendliness and her favor. But when she found out who I was, I got dismissed and rejected and humiliated. And I've hated Canadians ever since. <laughs> just kidding. I was just really disappointed about not going to that poutine festival. <laughs> so James is warning against some, I don't love Canadians. I love Canadians. James, for the record. James is warning us against something similar that is happening in this community that he's writing to. So their community is being tempted to unjustly favor some people and dismiss and dishonor other people. They were partial towards some people and partial against some other people. And in our text, James warns his readers against this, we're going to call it the sin of partiality. And it's not something that we often might have our radar up for in our own lives. We, being discriminated against, we often notice that, and it feels really bad, but it's much more difficult to feel and notice and know when we ourselves are being the ones that are discriminating, favoring some people, dismissing others. Uh, partiality is um, subtle, and it's insidious because it feels right, because we're going along with the world. We're going along with the ways of the world and how the world works. So how much do you think partiality might be a part of your life? Maybe it's more than we thought as we look at this text. And what's wrong with being partial, anyway? And what does partiality look like? And how do we persevere, what I'm going to call the trial of, par the trial of partiality? Those are all the questions we're going to answer as we get to this text. Our big idea for this message from James 2 is that because Jesus is the Lord of glory, we should show others love instead of partiality. Jesus is the Lord of glory, and therefore, we should show other people love instead of partiality. And we're going to delve into this topic with three points that are in James's verses here. Let's see from our text three points. First, the foolishness of partiality. Second, the heart of partiality. And where does it come from? And third, freedom from partiality. So the foolishness, the heart, and freedom from partiality. How can we get free from what really is a pretty disgusting sin? So our first point, the foolishness of partiality. Look with me in verses 2 to 3. James writes, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet. So, I've mentioned before that I love James's metaphors and images, and I love this one too. James opens the curtain on this early Christian worship service. This is the very last place we should find partiality, and he tells this hypothetical, pretty absurd story of two men that walk into a worship service. Two men walk in the door. They don't seem to actually, it might be their first time. They don't know what's going on. Then there's two, there's one thing that distinguishes these two men. It's their clothing. So one of the men, the, the first one it mentions, is resplendent. You ever use that word out loud? Never, except for in this <laughs> sermon. He's resplendent. Um, James describes him as gold-ringed. He's got fine clothing on. The word that describes his clothing is used to describe dazzling angels in other places in the Bible. I'm imagining when he walks in, everything just goes slow-mo, and people are just doing double takes at this guy in his resplendent clothing, his dazzling appearance. And they rush over to him, and they say, hey, sit over here in this good place. Do you need something to drink? Do you want some coffee, tea, wine? What can we get you? And they're bending over backwards to make sure that this guy's good, and he gets a good seat to sit in. 
But as he's walking in, at the same time, there's another person walking in, another man. And nobody's doing double takes on this guy. He's scruffy, shabby. He's wearing old, run-down clothes. And instead of finding a good place for this guy to sit and making sure this guy's good, they say, stand over here, sit down. And literally, it says, under my footstool. So sit under the footstool, like as low as you can get. Get out of the way. And the worship service gets started with the rich man sitting well and the poor man sitting next to people's feet, dismissed and rejected. Now, this is, uh, I love this, uh, there's so many places in James. Like, this is ridiculous and absurd. Ridiculous and absurd. Um, it's like if we had like lazy boys, a row of lazy boys up here for the, the people, for the anesthesiologists that come in. <laughs> and then people that are dressed badly, they got to sit out there with Aaron in the hallway and watch from out there. <laughs> um, this is a ridiculous situation. This is a ridiculous situation. If you're ever visiting a church and this happens, get out of there. Don't, don't continue to worship at that church. So James' main point, though, is not trying to just give instructions about what to do in worship services. He is showing the total absurdity of partiality in the last place that you should find it, in church, while we worship God. This is the last place that we should ever find it. And he's pointing out how absurd this is if this exists not just here, but anywhere in your life that we find partiality. So in the ancient world, um, the poor people, they were the ones that, they were despised or ignored because they either did something bad or they were bad and they deserved to be poor. And so they were treated with contempt or you could just ignore them. Um, the people in this story were acting just like the world did. That's exactly how the world treated poor people. They were, st the people in this story were stained by the world. We used that phrase last time I was up here. They're stained by the world. They're thinking like the world. The way that they operated the way that they valued, the way the categories that they made were just like the world's. Now, today, we definitely still have ways of despising the poor, uh, but there are some other changes that we could make to this text because um, James is getting to people that lack, like people that don't have. What kind of, where else can we see that? We see that um, Dan Doriani, he's one commentator that helps me here, helps us here. He says that we follow James most truly when we respect all the poor, so those who are poor in personality, the dull people, the complaining people, the socially naive, the socially awkward people, the people with low EQ, um, those who are poor in mind, the slow, the uneducated, maybe the immature, um, those who are poor in body, the unattractive. These people are all lacking. The poor man is this typical example of those who lack from the world's perspective. They lack from the world's perspective. They're, they're, we aren't just partial when it comes to people's wealth. That's one thing that we do. We do it with other, we, we put people in these other categories as well. Um, we are partial when it comes to people, for example, we're going to delve into this rest of the text, but um, we are partial when it comes to people's levels of power. We're partial to people with more power. We're partial toward people that are more attractive. We're partial to people that are cool. Uh, we're partial to people that are from Canada and not Tennessee, some people. <laughs> uh, we're partial to people with abilities. We're partial to people that make me feel good. And James is inviting us to put all of our relationships out there and maybe test them by this. Where, where is, does partiality show up in our relationships when we put it under investigation? Because partiality is foolish and absurd, as James shows here. Look at verses 4 to 5. He goes on some more. He says in verse 4, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen. My beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world 
to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. So favoring someone because they are rich in, in any way and dismissing someone who is poor for some reason, James says that this is evil thoughts. We're making up our own categories. We're making up our own distinctions, and we're judging you're in and you're out. You are worthy. You are not worthy. You're worthy of my time, and you're not. You can help me succeed. You cannot. You're popular, so you can help me to feel popular. You're not. You make me laugh and feel good, and you do not. And we discriminate on these categories, and these people are out of my life, and these people, I want them in my life, right? And on top of all this, James reminds us, that thing that we're doing, God doesn't do that, right? God doesn't do that. In fact, God especially delights to choose those who are poor and lacking in this world. You know, for example, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. He doesn't say poor in spirit there. Poor in spirit is the humble. He says, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom. He takes delight in lavishing faith and trust on them, so they are rich in trusting him, and they get a kingdom. They're heirs of the kingdom. All who trust in Jesus are heirs of the kingdom. There's going to be a physical, real kingdom on this earth when Jesus returns, and we're going to be rulers in that kingdom. So James says, when you've done this to this poor man, you have dishonored him. You have dishonored an heir of the kingdom. This is like a prince walking around who would one day inherit rule on this earth, and you're dishonoring this guy who actually deserves honor. And you know what's really sad? This partiality, uh, the church is not immune to this partiality throughout history. The same partiality that we're talking about here. Have you ever wondered, for example, why is there, in America, why is there a black church, predominantly black church, and predominantly white church? It's because of partiality. Let me give an example. This is just one example of many, but the African Methodist Episcopal Church is one example of what happens throughout the church's history in America. I first heard this story in seminary, and I did not know what to do with the story. This is just one of many, many stories. So it's 1792, it's Philadelphia, and there's this guy, Richard Allen, and he was a slave, and he had bought himself out of slavery 10 years before. He'd become a minister, and he was invited to preach at this interracial Methodist church called St. George's. And it sounds good at first, but at that church, I mean, these people have never read James 2. At this church, um, black worshipers were not allowed to sit in pews. They had to sit in special areas of the church. Um, so he starts preaching at this church regularly. And then one Sunday in 1792, Richard Allen and a fellow black minister were accidentally praying in seats reserved for white people. And so here's, he recounts what happens next, Richard Allen does. Um, I think I have it up here. Okay, so this is what he writes. We had not been long upon our knees before I heard considerable scuffling and low talking. I raised my head up and saw one of the trust, white trustees having hold of my friend, pulling him up off his knees and saying, you must get up, you must not kneel here. My friend replied, wait until prayer is over. And the trustee said, no, you must get up now or I will call for help and force you away. And apparently this is the final straw because after this, Richard Allen writes, we all went out of the church as a body and there were no, they were no more plagued with us in this church. And this is how the American, uh, the African Methodist Episcopal Church was founded. This is just one example. Uh, but partiality, colored by racism here, is why we have black and white churches in America. Because white Christians dishonored black Christians, like Richard Allen, who were rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. 
And as gross and foolish and as an example as that is, of, of, of partiality that that is, um, whatever fake distinctions that we make up are just as gross and messed up. Um, whether it's people that are cool, people that are not cool, people that are attractive, not attractive, people that give me stuff, people that can't give me stuff. Um, it's just wrong, and it's foolish. So James shows us the foolishness of partiality, and he's been focusing on our attitude here toward the poor man. Next, let's look in the next verses and see his uh, our attitude toward the rich man, or the people's attitude toward the rich man, and explore the heart of partiality. This is our second point. Where's the, what is the heart of partiality? What's at the bottom of it when we're partial? So in James's image here, we've seen that there is dishonor shown to the poor man, and there's honor shown to the rich man. One's worthy, and one's not. But why? What's the difference? What's the distinction? Why are people making these distinctions and being partial like this? And why, do we be par- why are we partial like this when we are? So in verses 6 and 7, which we're going to read here, James begins to open the lid of our hearts and show us what's going on inside. He writes, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Now, at first, it almost sounds like he's trying to start like a class, ro- a class war here with the rich and the poor in the church. But that's not what's happening. Here's what James is saying. He's saying, y'all, why are you honoring, kowtowing, and groveling to these people who oppress you, drag you into court, and blaspheme the name of Jesus in doing so? The picture James paints here is like these desperate, anxious, quivering beggars coming up to these cold, abrasive abusers and just trying to get some scraps from them, just trying to get some scraps from their table. It's like that trope of the unpopular kid who's nice to all the popular mean kids in order for some of that sweet, sweet popularity to just rub off on them a little bit. That's what this looks like for these people. They're thinking, maybe this rich person will give me an opportunity. Maybe they'll give me a few bucks. Maybe I'll get taken care of for once. Maybe someone can help me. If I just grovel a little, degrade myself a little, humiliate myself a little with this rich guy, why would someone do this? Well, at the heart of partiality is a desperation and fear. Follow partiality down, and what it, what it comes from is deep insecurity. Because I believe that no one else is going to take care of me. The question in this trial of partiality that determines whether we persevere in it or not is how do you answer this question? Who do you believe really takes care of you at the end of the day? Is it someone else? Is it God? Is it yourself? The answer to that comes out in our partiality. If I believe that I'm all, here's the thing, if I believe that I'm all on my own, that I'm not going to waste my precious time, my energy, my money, my emotional gas, relational gas tank on people that drain me, why would I do that? I want to be surrounded by people that make me feel good, people that have good personalities, right? People that make me laugh, people that make me feel good about myself, people that help me reach my goals, People that, I want to be around people that have their lives together, not those people that have messed up lives. I don't, I can't stand to be drained. I need, I need to not be drained so that I can survive, because nobody's taking care of me. I want to be surrounded by people with power, popularity, connections, resources. Those are the people that are in with me. Think about the guy in the story. Why, I mean, this guy's going to be a drain. He has shabby clothing, he's a poor person. He's going to be a drain to the church. He's going to be a drain to individuals at this church. So let's just put him over there so we don't have to think about him or deal with him. 
Now, I'm not talking about abusive people, and I'm talking, and I'm all about having healthy boundaries with people. What we're talking about, though, here are people that are a drain in, in the general term or whatever that looks like for you. Their lives are a mess, and it's their fault. And being in relationship with them means that they offer me nothing but bigger problems, more problems, more complications. Because of them, my life is going to be more of a pain. Being in relationship with them, moving toward them, is going to make my life a little more complicated. I follow Joel Osteen on Twitter for some reason. Um, he's a super popular prosperity gospel preacher. And he had this quote semi-recently, which gave me pause. <laughs> he said, here's what he says. He says, your time is too valuable to spend it with negative people. People that have no vision, no passion, no zeal. You need to be around people that help you stay stirred up. Is that not messed up? That is partiality. <laughs> That's what partiality is. Don't invest your time in people with no vision, passion, or zeal. Imagine if that was Jesus' attitude toward you, <laughs> right? Um, but here's what's crazy. Jesus looked at you. Jesus saw the mess that your life is. He saw all of your problems. He saw the pain that, is all your, the pain that you have in your life that is all your fault. He saw that you deserved it. He saw it all more than you're ever going to see. And then he saw you judging other people in their mess. <laughs> and what did Jesus say? I'll die for that guy. I'll die for her. <laughs> he saw all this and more, and he drained himself for you. In order to be in relationship with you, with, because of the love with which he loved you, he sacrificed himself to the point of death on a cross. He took the punishment for all the mess that you've made of your life. He moved toward you in your mess. You had nothing to offer Jesus but your sins and your debts and your mess, and he said, I'm going to take that for will. I'm going to take the punishment for that, of that for will. And he doesn't deserve it. <laughs> I'll take what Will deserves. And if you've trusted him, you can know he has said this about you too. The perfect life that he lived, his perfect honorable name that he poured out on you, if you trust in him, then he pours that out on you. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. Jesus, here's, here's, the, here's where we're going with this. Jesus pours himself out for you with much cost to himself. And that is what he calls us to do, his people to do, for people that do not deserve it. The heart of partiality is a belief that you are alone, you're desperate, and you're unloved. You've got to take care of yourself. But the gospel is that you are so loved and met when you were at your absolutely most unlovable self. You were loved this way so that you would love the unlovable. The messy people the unlovable people. This good news that James proclaims here is love for the unlovable, first for you and then out of your life, out of, out of yourself into the world, out into specific people, friends, family, people in your class, people in your work. Is this what characterizes you? Is this what characterizes our church? Uh, is this what the characteristic of your home, of your family? Um, is this your reputation? <coughs> at work or at school or whatever groups you're in? Is this your reputation? That you love unlovable, annoying people? Um, do you have a reputation for being kind and being one that honors those that are considered the biggest losers by the world? The biggest time sucks at your job? 
by your classmates. The so, you love the socially awkward. You love the relationally unaware. Those with the low, IQ, low EQ. That should be uh, a characteristic of all of us. When I was in, uh, when we were in St. Louis, before we moved here, John, um, one of my kids, had a uh, um, parent-teacher conference. And it was the first one we ever went to. And I remember beforehand thinking, oh, 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 I hope she says this, I hope she says this. And I was like, wait a second, that's kind of gross. Because uh, what, what I was thinking about, you know, the best thing that you can hear at a parent-teacher conference, I know everybody's like, does homeschooling here, so just imagine. <laughs> 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 the best thing you can hear as a parent or um, from a teacher at a parent-teacher conference is not that your child is a great leader. Mm-mm. Who cares? It's not that they're top of their class. Jesus doesn't care. It's not that they have great potential. The best thing for the teacher to say is something like, I don't know what you're doing at home, but the compassion and love your child has for the difficult and the outcast and the weird kids in my class is incredible. Blows me away. That's the best thing you can hear from, from a teacher at a parent-teacher conference. Do your children and whatever, whatever little ones or impressionable ones you have in your life, um, do they know from your words and they do, do they know from your actions that their number one priority in life is not to get good grades, it's not to be a leader, it's not to change the world, it's to love others. It's to take that love that they know from Jesus, that they experience from you and from Jesus, and to turn that out into the, into the world, to the people that don't deserve it, to the people that are hard to love. That's why Jesus saved them. And this actually leads to our last point. We've seen the foolishness of partiality and the heart of partiality. What does freedom from partiality look like? We've touched on this already a little bit. How can we get free from this absurd, subtle, insidious sin? Um, The answer is in verse 1, which we skipped on purpose, so I'll go back to it. Uh, So verse 1, James begins the story this way. He writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So, there's been another person at this worship service the whole time. Maybe you didn't notice. I didn't notice for a while. Maybe the readers didn't notice. The ironic thing is that while they have been fawning all over this resplendent, gold-ringed man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the Lord of splendor, nobility, majesty, greatness, power, authority, he's been there the whole time. (laughs) He's been there this whole time. We, you know, we may naturally, when we think about Jesus, we think about him in his humility when he came to, on this earth for 30, 33 years or so. Um, Jesus is now, at this point, he's resurrected, he's ascended, he's seated at the right hand of God. All power and authority has been given to him. He's not the Jesus meek and lowly right now on this earth. He's in heaven. He's the Lord of glory. And next to Jesus, this rich man is a beggar. He is a pauper. Popper, P-A-U-P-E-R, next to the Lord of glory. And this is ironic because what, what all these people, what they want from this rich guy, security, safety, a sense of belonging, um, a defense against an uncaring world. Just some scraps from this rich guy's table. They already have it. They already have what they're being so desperate trying to get. It's ridiculous. They already have it because Jesus is the Lord of glory. He's got everything that they need. He's got all the power. He's got all the riches. He's got all the safety and authority. And the kicker is that unlike these callous, uncaring, wealthy folks, Jesus actually loves them. He is on their side. He loves them so much that he has died for them. And as your trust comes to rest more and more on the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, partiality 
loses its grip. When you know that he's got you, you don't have to be this anxious, dependent on others, self-centered, selfish um, person anymore. You don't have to do that anymore. You can stop. You can just give it up. He's got you, and now you can do crazy things. You can do crazy things. You got, like, new superpowers. You know what you can do now? You can love really unlovable people that don't have any friends. And they don't have any friends for a reason, because they're very unlovable people. You actually have the power now to love them. You can be a person of integrity and mercy at your work and school, because the, what other people think and what other people might be able to give you doesn't really matter anymore. You can resist, resist this urge to grovel to powerful, popular people. Isn't that so gross when you look back and you see you've done that? It's gross, and you don't have to do it anymore. You can give that up. You can move into the world, into people's lives, with confidence and love. You can be confident because you know that Jesus has got you. The Lord of glory has got you. And you can be, move toward them in love because you've experienced this love from him. Love for messy, burdened sinners. You've experienced that from Jesus. You can do this for others, and he's changed you. CBC, this week, James challenges us to remember the one who you trust in, the Lord of glory. Is there someone that maybe you're being partial to because you're basically using them, because you're desperate and scared? Is there someone that you dismiss or are contemptuous toward or you um, just ignore because they're a pain in the neck? I've got a word from the Lord for you. That is the person to love this week. <laughs> God has put that person in your life for you to love them. Let's ask the Lord of glory to help us to take a step in trusting him and loving other people. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would reveal to us this week that we don't have to kowtow to the powerful, and we don't have to dismiss those without power, the poor. Show us the Lord of glory that he has got us so that we can do amazing works of love and move into messy places knowing that Jesus has us and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.